Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. In just a second, you know, somewhere in the world right now at a major airport, somebody who paid for an airline ticket and got into their seat like buying a pair of jeans at the store you put them in the bag you leave airline passenger buys the ticket sits in the seat when you leave the store with the jeans you're not physically assaulted by an employee of the store telling you you Better give those back because we sold them to somebody else. But with the airline situation, you know the Dr. Dow story. So, have a listen. No matter how many times you hear it, it is disturbing. And then Dr. Dow got back on the plane. I have to go home. 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 Go home. Just kill me. Just kill me. Kill me. Just kill me. Kill me. Just kill me. Just kill me. Just kill me. Poor guy. Absolutely, absolutely distressed, shocked, was out cold, knocked unconscious as they were dragging him out of the plane. Blood all over his face. And then we got the uh, United Airlines CEO. Ah, it's just, it's just the way we do business. <laughs> okay. So what's happening to your stock? Anyway, uh, Fortune magazine, fortune.com, printed a story about uh, being kicked off airliners. And... Um, they write in part, anyone who's flown in the past several years has likely encountered this classic game of trying to coax passengers to give up their seats for a voucher. Airlines often overbook flights, and when everyone shows up, the staff begins, like an auctioneer, offering 200 400 how about $600 to anyone willing to forego this flight for another. That's with some airlines. What happens if nobody steps up? Well, this week, video was posted, uh, Fortune writes, Short uh, showing security, forcibly removing a man from an overbooked United Airlines flight. The fallout has been swift and unrelenting. And then they write this. JetBlue flight attendant Stephen Slater made perhaps the most famous exit ever from a job after an altercation with an alleged abusive passenger on a flight between Pittsburgh and New York City. Slater took the plane's public address system to air his grievances. He then publicly quit his job, grabbed two beers, deployed the evacuation slide on the plane and bailed from the scene. 
<laughs> I think too many people have forgotten that story. And they finish. <laughs> See ya. Uh, wouldn't want to be ya. Uh, <laughs> the fortune story ends with this. In the era of social media, customers often take to Twitter or Facebook to spread their tales of airline traveling woe. Musician Dave Carroll used music, three catchy songs in all, to share his account in 2008 during a trip on a United Airlines flight that resulted in a broken guitar and the company's subsequent response. Connecting in Chicago's old air While on the ground a passenger said from the seat behind me My God, they're throwing guitars out there The band and I exchanged a look Best described as terror At the action on the tarmac And knowing whose projectiles these would So before I left Chicago, I alerted three employees who showed complete indifference towards me. United, United, you broke my Taylor guitar. Well, it's not Martin, it was a Taylor. I don't know why I said Martin guitar, Taylor guitar. Here's my good friend Dave Carroll, United Breaks Guitars, Dave at Dave Carroll Music. Com. And I want to say this before I say anything to Dave. If you haven't listened to Dave Carroll's music, he is a seriously good, great musician and singer. Great songs, great stories to be told. Uh, Dave's music, Dave at DaveCarrollMusic.com. So, Dave, thanks for taking all the time. And when you listen, when you hear the, the, the opening 30 seconds, 45 seconds, of the original United Breaks guitars, what what do you feel when when you hear that? Does it take you back to those days right away? It uh, it reminds me, I guess, yeah. And when when the video first came out, that was being played on the media a lot, and uh, yeah, I'm familiar with that opening motif for sure. Yeah. So this week we've had the Doctor Dow story. And uh, that, again, is United Airlines. And now there's another story about a family in uh, PEI. We'll be talking to the dad a little later this hour. Their 10-year-old son was not allowed on a plane for a family vacation to go to Costa Rica. They let the rest of the family on, but the 10-year-old boy was not allowed on the plane and told he'd have to make his own way to Costa Rica. And that wasn't United. That was Air Canada. How often does this sort of, I mean, Dave, you do a lot of traveling. How often do you find the treatment that you receive from airlines to be troubling? Well, in terms of being bumped off, it, it happens all the time where at, when you're at the gate, you'll hear them start the bidding and, and say, this flight is oversold. We'd like to offer you, as you said, start the bidding at 200 and go. I've seen it go as high as about $800. Right. And uh, I've also been on the plane uh, from New York to Halifax with United, and uh, they they started the bidding, said three or four people had to get off, and and I've uh, gone through that scenario as well. So it's it's troubling. Uh, the the average person doesn't really care what the reason is, whether it's for air crew. I've been hearing a lot of people make a distinction that this was an oversold, this was air crew, but to the people who are kicked off the plane with the tickets that they had bought, assuming they would be able to fly it, it makes no difference. And uh, I question how 
that's possible in the first place. Very, very frustrating and infuriating. Airports are not comfortable places to be anyway, particularly not in these times because you never know when you're going to be slowed up or slowed down and when there's a problem going to arise and then something like this is thrown in your way. It creates additional stress, and we saw what happened on that United Airlines plane. Uh, how did your situation end with United Airlines, or, or has it ended? It ended fairly quickly. If you recall, the, my guitar got broken, and I tried to get them for nine months to take responsibility, which they never did until about the nine-month mark when they finally just said, you didn't open a claim within 24 hours, and that's why we're not responsible. Our policy is clear. We don't have to do anything. And so I said, I don't accept that, a policy, that policy, so I'm going to make three music videos, post them to YouTube, and it took me seven months to make the first one because I wasn't working at it every day type of thing. And thanks to my friends, and we, for $150, we were, were able to put together a really nice video, and uh, we posted it, and then it went viral, and four days later, it hit a million views, and that's when we talked to United on the phone, and uh, they offered me the same compensation. They promised me all those many months before that I would never get, and I said, no, thank you at that point. So it was kind of resolved in terms of uh, me accepting that uh, they no longer owed me anything, but I did complete the trilogy, and um, my relationship with them is, has been very quiet in the last few years, but uh, early on, for about three, three maybe three and a half years, I, I think uh, I was re- reaching out to them in good faith for people that had broken guitars or had trouble and asked if I could help, and I would connect them. And in every case, I think they were doing the right thing and helping uh, musicians in need and that sort of, sort of thing. But then I, I think they figured, I'm just never going to go away. So right. they stopped uh, responding. One might say that United Breaks Guitar struck a responsive chord with people. <laughs> Sorry. Not the first time I've heard that, I'm but sure. But I'm bum. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. My God, they're throwing guitars out there. And the guitars uh, they were throwing included the guitar of Dave Carroll. United Airlines, United Breaks Guitars. Uh, DaveCarrollMusic.com is the website. So, um, Dave, when you when you complained and when you wrote the uh, video and it went viral and a million people viewed it, and it was not the best sort of situation as far as PR was concerned for United Airlines, did you find yourself, I don't want to use the word blackballed, but did you find that airlines were aware of you because of the notoriety of the situation with United? Uh, yep, definitely. But I, I, to be honest, I've never had a, a really bad experience. I've, I've met uh, a couple of people in my, my travels who were unimpressed to see me, for sure. But for uh, for certain, and there's been many other times I've met people in uniform at United who came up to shake hands to say they really appreciated the, the song and it was bang on and, and uh, that sort of thing. So for, for the most part, it's been a, a welcoming thing. Yeah, you did nothing wrong. It was your guitar that was smashed. So clearly, you were just saying you have responsibility for this and and own up to it. That's the way I saw it, and and I think a lot of other people did too, but you will find people, uh, in most cases, related to United in some way, who are thinking for the, they're protecting the company, and they think uh, stuff happens, and the airline didn't really mean to do it, and uh, it says in your your contract to carriage that if uh, we break it, we're not responsible and they take the, the legal route and they, they tow that line and, and uh, I think they're dead wrong about it, but yeah. that's their opinion. They also sued a 22-year-old entrepreneur in, uh, 
in New York who opened a travel website which uh, allowed you to fly a lot cheaper, and uh, and Ida didn't like that, so they sued him over his website. Now, uh, we want to play just a few seconds of a little bit of the song that uh, that you wrote for firefighters in North America, The Fallen and the Brave. Tell us a bit about how did the song come about? Well, one of the happy circumstances around the United Breaks Guitars is I do a lot of speaking now, and I've spoken in 26 countries. And one of these events where I was speaking about customer service and storytelling uh, and the need to have more compassion in your business, I, w- I was speaking to firefighters. And uh, somebody there said, you should try writing a song for Fallen Firefighters, the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation, uh, there to, to celebrate the lives of the firefighters who die each year, but they also are very active in supporting the families uh, of the fallen. And so they said, can you write a song that tries to wrap all that together? And so I did. And uh, they really liked it, and it's now part of a national campaign to help raise some money for the families. And uh, my brother Don and I last year got to go in October to the National Memorial in Emmitsburg, Maryland, and celebrate uh, the lives of the this year's Fallen, and thousands of people are there. It's a great, uh, big, solemn event with uh, hundreds of pipers and the families and the flag folding ceremony that they give is in in memory of the firefighters, and it's very moving. And uh, so I'm really honored to be associated with it, and the song seems to uh, uh, touch a nerve for people. Well, uh, stick around, uh, Dave. Let's just listen to a little bit of the Fallen and the Brave. There's a saying in our firehouse That everyone goes home And we know the perils in our job Every time we hear the tone And on this day we fought a blaze We did our job for lives were saved But in the end I sacrificed my own I hear bells in the distance Pipers playing a song for me Where flags are folded in our memory I'm going home to Emmitsburg They'll call my name in Emmitsburg the uh, Fallen and the Brave by uh, Dave Carroll, DaveCarrollMusic.com, and that's for the Fallen Firefighters. God bless them. First responders, firefighters, police, EMTs, tremendous people. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for uh, spending the time with us today, and uh, you really proved to be a, uh, an avenue for cathartic release of frustration with, uh, with airlines for, for lots of people. And good talking to you again. It's been a while, but thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Roy. I appreciate that a lot. We'll talk to you again. Thanks, Dave. Dave Carroll, uh, DaveCarrollMusic.com. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Brett Doyle is next. He's in uh, Prince Edward Island and uh, quite an adventure that I was reading about this morning. Uh, Jim Day, as I said, in The Guardian and PEI wrote this story. Uh Brett, I, I don't know where to start other than you did everything right. You you ordered your tickets way in advance. You paid for them way in advance, and it didn't make a difference. No, not not really. Um, I fly a decent amount, I would say average or maybe slightly above, and uh, 
when we did a 24-hour check-in for the tickets I purchased months earlier and uh, was not given a seat, I, I really knew exactly what was up at that point in time because I'd been at the airport enough and I've seen this happen to enough other people. And uh, the operator told me, no, no, just, just go to the airport an hour early and they'll deal with it there. And I really wanted to get out of her, and I asked her several times, is the flight oversold? And she would not answer one way or another. So we have sort of took matters into our own hands at that point in time because I, I didn't want to find out the next day, an hour before our flight, that it was sold out and have to deal with it then. Yeah. Um, we're in a small market. We have really limited options to fly out of where we're flying to. And to make the connection that I had to make, I really didn't have any other option to get there other than that one flight. Yeah. Let me just read a little bit from the story to, to, to provide a little background here. The major snag began when Brett Doyle uh, tried to book his family and reserve seats on March 15, March 15, for a flight from Charlottetown to Costa Rica through Montreal, a flight he'd already purchased for his family back in August. He was given a seat, as was his wife, Shanna, and the couple's eight-year-old son, Simon. However, Brett uh, was told there's no seat available for his 10-year-old son, Cole. Shanna drove to the Charlottetown airport, hoping to resolve the problem. An Air Canada agent was very apologetic, but unable to help her family's flight plight. Uh, Shanna was told the flight was several seats oversold and that her son would likely not get on. So now we're talking about a 10-year-old kid. We're talking about a kid who's with his mom and his dad and his brother, and they're leaving PEI to go to Costa Rica on vacation. And what the airline's saying is, mom, dad, and the seven-year-old, they can get on the plane and they can go. But the 10-year-old, he's just going to have to find his own way there. Here's a couple of hints and suggestions, but good luck to you. That was basically it, wasn't it, Brett? Yeah, yeah, pretty pretty much. I mean, there's, there's obviously a lot more to the story than we'll have time to get into, and I put a lot of it on my Facebook page, but... Um, th- that's basically it. I mean, we, when we buy our tickets, we put the people's ages. They they know that when they issue the tickets or not issue them. And uh, yeah, we we there was no ticket for the ten year old. We, we were the part that's not in the article, and there's lots of other parts. But we were traveling with a big group. There was eleven of us, and eight of which were adults. And um, there were several of the adults that offered to give up their seat to um, give it to the child. But the flight was oversold by six people, we were told, so there's, there was no guarantee that had any of those adults given up their seat, that it wouldn't instantly get snagged up by one of the other six that are also hovering like sharks yeah. trying to get those those seats. And, and then they suggested, uh, I'm sorry, they suggested that you and your family uh, drive to Moncton in New Brunswick and fly yeah. into Montreal to catch the flight to Costa Rica. Uh, you did, but then you were told the flight was cancelled. Yeah, yeah, I thought, I, honest to God, I thought it was a joke. When we, I thought I was looking for cameras. I thought it was for sure there was some kind of a joke on me. Yeah, we we like drove it. the two hours to the airport. We walked through security. We didn't check in at the gate because we already had our tickets. We walked through security, and the security officer said, so did they not tell you at the gate that this flight was canceled? And I sort of laughed. I, I thought it was a joke, and I said no. And they said, oh, you have to go back and recheck and, and try to figure something else out for this flight because it, it, this flight's been canceled. Oh. It's just bizarre. I mean, it's the kind of scenario where you think somebody, one of your friends is pranking you on TV or on, on online on YouTube, somebody's YouTube channel, you're going to show up there. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was exactly. the real deal. Yeah. And it goes on to yeah. say that, uh, that you ended up uh, giving up your seat on the original flight, and uh, you and your son Cole drove to Halifax so you could get on a flight to Montreal and then to yeah. to to um, uh, Costa Rica, and your wife and your other son got on the original plane 
and they flew that way. So the family was was not he didn't have the enjoyment of going together. Plus, it probably scared the daylights, as Jim writes in his in his story, scared the daylights out of your son. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, after we drove the two hours to to Moncton and then waited for another hour and a half in the line to get reassigned another another seat, we we then drove another two and a half hours to Halifax. Um, while my wife, at that point, after she got us to Halifax, had to turn around and drive back to Charlottetown to catch the 5.45 a.m. flight that we were supposed to be on initially. So she she basically got no sleep. By the time she got home, it was two hours until until the next flight. And, and during this whole time, while we were waiting in line, we were also waiting on the phone with Air Canada. We were trying to do a little bit of homework before we got them on the phone so we could be prepared. So when we got them on the phone, we said, okay, we, we found a couple of options. We can get on this flight, this flight to get us to Montreal in order to get the connection, meet up with the family. And the uh, the, the person on the phone will said, said, well, no, th- those flights are also sold out. And I said, well, why would you be selling them? Like, what, what happens if I buy this flight and show up? And they said, well, it'd be the same thing. Someone's going to get bumped. It might be you. It might be someone else. But we continue to sell those flights Just bizarre. In, in not so many words. Just bizarre. Uh, Air Canada um, offers uh, to review your family's expenses and uh, provide a $2,500 travel voucher, they, it, it says here. And uh, I mean, you get the travel vouchers and no guarantee you'll be able to get on the plane. I, uh, I, I, it, it's scary. It, it really is scary because people make plans, hard plans, important plans for life, sometimes life plans. And uh, an airline pops along and says, sorry, you can't get on yeah. the plane. Brett, I, I, I've thought of- yeah. Somebody hung up on Brett. Not me. I didn't touch anything. Not me. Not me. Sorry, Brett. Uh, we'll take a break. Uh, that really is the end of our story. It was going to be at the end of our story anyway on uh, on the airlines. And and then uh, Brett and his family's, Brett Doyle and his family's awful situation with Air Canada. When we come back, he's a high school student. He has developed an anti-bullying program that is being used in Ontario and in is being looked at in Canada, other Canadian provinces, and American states. But the Ontario Education Minister won't even respond to his communications. We'll talk to this young man in a minute. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. All right, here we go. I don't know if it's uh, connected with the airlines or not, Steve, but... We weren't able to talk to you. People can't fly. We can't talk. It's it's a crazy world we live in. How are you? I'm fine, Roy. How are you? Good, good. Uh, you and Happy. I have communicated many times by email. First time we're talking. I feel like I know your son through you, and I'm really proud of him. Well, I'm very proud of him, too. He's just made a lot of people aware of what he's done, and that's the most important part. Yeah. Can I talk to him for a sec? Yeah, one sec. Okay, because we're working with one phone now. We're going to have two, Hello, two lines. Happy Easter. Hi, Scott. Happy Easter to you. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Let me just tell uh, folks a little bit about you. Um, you have Asperger's okay. syndrome, and when you ding, were ding, ding. thank you for playing. That was obvious. Well, I, you know, it's you were having a lot of trouble with being bullied when you were a little guy in school, and you developed oh, an anti-bullying program. Sorry. Still, still was bullied. Still being bullied. Oh boy. Yep. But you developed an anti-bullying program, right? Yeah. And it worked really well. Mm-hmm. Tell us, how does it work? What do, what do people, how does your program work? How, how, would he, how do you stop the bullying, Scott? Hmm. Well, um, 
we kind kind um the way we stopped it at our school was uh we um created this shirt shirt uh, co- uh design contest right and um it had and the shirts had to uh, say uh like stop bullying right um and also it added our we added our school logo on it mm-hmm. to make the kids feel like they belong somewhere and um as soon as we uh, and uh, when when we got the shirts, we uh, gave them out for about ten ten dollars uh, a shirt, and uh, then um, um, lots of kids started we- wearing them at school, and not many kids were being bullied. Uh, we, we heard from an anonymous so- source that bullying went down fifty five percent since uh, the program went in. Wow! And you you developed this when you were in grade five. Yes. Uh, Yes, me uh, with uh, my, my both with my principal and my uh, my my partner in the cl- club, Mr. Tristan Parker, and um, yeah, so so we created different ways of uh, trying to s- stop bullying and using the money from the shirt contest, we brought in uh, groups um, to t- speak to the kids ab- about bullying. And this is your initiative. Good for you. And this this initiative that you put together has been uh, praised in the United States and in Canada by educators. Your member of parliament talked about you in parliament last week, talking about how important you are and how this program is. But you sent three, was it emails or letters, to the Ontario Minister of Education? Three emails, and she still has not um, uh, answered back. And what did you want? What did you write to a minister, um, uh, uh, Missy Hunter? Hunter, yeah. What What were you telling her in the emails? I was asking her to uh, think about putting in programs like uh, 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 um, uh, for for the schools right. to teach the kids about bullying at a very young young age. That's the whole point to keep it at a young age so they don't do it in the future. Yeah, and and it it has worked. Your program has worked in your schools. They like it in Kentucky. They like it in yep. Colorado. They like it in Saskatchewan. They like it in Alberta, and they like it in Ontario. But you can't get the Ontario Minister of Education to re- to even reply to you. Yes, that's all. Pretty annoying. You want to tell her something? You know, they, I know the people from the government listen to what we do on the air. So, do, what do you want to say to the minister? I just want to see if she has an answer to get back to you. Yeah. Scott Smith, Minister, Minister Hunter. It's Scott Smith. You have three uh, emails from him you haven't uh, replied to. Scott, congratulations. Can I talk to your dad for just a sec? You certainly may. Okay. Boy, he's right. I can't. I can't. I may. I'm so impressed. So impressed, Steve, with your son. Yeah. Well, you didn't mention, he also used to have meetings at the school, like every couple months. And about 40 kids would come in just to talk about bullying. Right. And um, like it shows the kids care. They want to do something about it. I think they do. I think that, and when they, and when someone like your son takes the initiative, and and reminds them what's, what bullying's about, and gives them an option to fight bullying, you know that kids often, many of them, will step up because they want to do something, and they end up doing something positively. But now Scott needs to hear back from the minister. Yeah, I think. Well, I hope so because I don't think. Well, they don't have any programs. We know that for the yeah. like the leading. People that are studying this at university say the best time to teach the kids is in elementary school. Yeah. 
and that message goes forward with them to middle school and high school and beyond. I've often said that what school administrations do is they have no idea what uh, to do with bullying, so they write zero-tolerance policies that they then hide behind when the next bullying event happens because they have no they have no idea what to do, so they say, we'll just consult our policy, which they wrote yeah, defensively well, in the first place. No, most of the programs are reactive, and they're not even very reactive as well. Yeah. Zero-tolerance usually comes with a big but. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, a lot of people, just nothing gets done. Yeah. Steve, we're, uh, done. We're, we're, we're out of time, but I thank you uh, and Scott for joining us, and all the very best. We'll stay in touch, and we'll see how, how this goes, and hope the Minister of Ontario will at least have a look at what Scott sent, because it's working, and other politicians, including parliamentarians, have, uh, have sided in with him and, and supported it. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Scott. All the best. Oh, you have a happy Easter. And a happy Easter to you guys. We'll come right back. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. A national poll in this country by Angus Reid, the Angus Reid Institute, shows that Canadians prioritize border security uh, over aid to those crossing into Canada illegally. Now, we talked to uh, Shachi Curl at um, the Angus Reid Institute. She's the executive director there. Uh, Not so long ago about border security and the attitudes Canadians have about the border. And the question at that time was, when the weather gets warmer, are the numbers going to increase, people entering Canada from the United States illegally, and what's that going to do to public opinion? Shachi, what have you found out? What was the question that you asked people this time around? And thanks for joining us. Hey, Roy, happy to happy to be here. Happy Easter to you uh, and, and uh, Holy Weekend to those who are celebrating uh, from many different faiths. Indeed. Um, Thank you. Uh, you know, there is a palpable concern uh, among a significant number of Canadians, uh, nearly half of them, who uh, are of the opinion that as the weather uh, turns and gets a little bit better, uh, the trickle, the, the, the one and two and maybe a few dozen crossings that we're seeing uh, in places like Emerson and, and uh, at the Quebec border at, at L'Ecole, uh will either increase quite a bit or become a flood. Now, whether or not that's based in, in any knowledge or any sense of, of, of um, or simply a sense of worry or fear or, or call it what you will, uh, that is the feeling that's there. Uh, and it's, it's coming from somewhere. I can't speculate where it's coming from. Canadian but, knowledge uh, of it's climate. It's what people feel. It's Canadian knowledge of climate. Well, it's Canadian knowledge of climate, but, uh, but you know, I, I think, hey, I, I'm a statistician. I, I watch the trends. So, you know, for me, uh, if something is happening now, there, we, can, we can infer or maybe make some predictions as to what will happen in the future, but we can't say we know that. And I think the Canadians also have to recognize that they can't necessarily know what's happening. Maybe U.S. border enforcement on their side will crack down. We there's, don't know, but clearly there's a fear. There yeah. is a fear. What was the question that, uh, that created this 72% response uh, overall? The, the concern is about the border, not so much about the people crossing it about the yeah, welfare see, of the people crossing it. It's a, it's a security risk issue, mm-hmm. and that is something that we've seen time and time again uh, when it comes to the question of newcomers and per, per, uh, particularly refugees coming into the country. We saw this uh, nearly nearly two years ago, fully a year and a half ago, uh, when the Trudeau government in its early days said, well, you know what, we're going to settle 25,000 people within you know a, a six-week time period, basically between October at the time they had won the election and the end of the year. 
uh, people were very freaked out about that. When those timelines were relaxed and more of an emphasis was put on security screening uh, in order to sort of go slowly, slowly, gently, gently in, a, in order to get all those 25,000 people uh, settled, Canadians also relaxed. And they said, okay, as long as we're taking the time to ensure that we're vetting people properly, that the people coming in don't pose any kind of security risks, that, that they don't have uh, any shady backgrounds that, that might threaten public safety in our country, we're fine with this. And clearly the question here as well is one of security. It's not so much that Canadians don't want to take a leadership role uh, or set an example for the world in terms of, of how we uh, how we treat and 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 deal with uh, those seeking uh, refuge at our at our borders. In fact, Canadians do say they want to be an example of the, for the world, but they are as concerned about the threat posed by the arrivals. Um, as they are uh, sort of motivated by an opportunity to help the people. And so they're very torn. Canadians are very torn. They're experiencing some uh, amount of existential threat. On one hand, they're concerned about security. On the other hand, they genuinely are motivated to want to do the right thing. Now, we don't and know. The people who are crossing now from the United States, crossing illegally, we don't know if they're actually genuine refugees. We, we can surmise that they may be, but we don't know until they're actually dealt with by the IRB. Well, and, and there is a sense of, of division on that question in the minds of Canadians. Um, you know, there, there is a sense that uh, for a, a plurality of them, about 40%, that they think that, well, the majority are genuine, uh, but uh, but a good number also think that, you know what, uh, the minority are, are actually genuine and some are just sort of being opportunistic. Uh, whether or not that's true, again, it's got to be dealt with by the IRB. What happens sometimes in, in a vacuum of information, because now the people who have come in, they're into a very long, slow process of hearings and applications and processing and all of that, is we don't actually know what the outcome is. We don't know if the IRB will then turn around yeah. and say, no, these people have uh, genuine, legitimate concerns and they should be here, or whether they don't. We're not going to know that for, you know, now, up, the, to, the up IRB, to several months. The IRB process is extremely slow, yes. and then it's open for many appeals and lots of, di- lots of disagreements, uh, maybe not so much now, but in the recent past there were lots of strong disagreements between people on the IRB itself. So it created a great deal of confusion. Is there a message here for the federal and provincial political leaders? Does this poll urge them to make a decision or take a direction or address Canadians? What's, uh, what's the message for them? Well, we certainly don't advise or take a position ourselves, but what I would say is this, is this, again, is consistent with Canadian opinion on the refugee question. So, you know, if there is any advice to be taken, it's, it, it would be to don't pull Canadians along too far, too fast, and in any particular direction, because people are very torn on this question, and they are, are left to make decisions and form opinions within a vacuum of information. So you know what? If you want people on side, you've got to communicate with them and demonstrate why why those coming in are or are not uh, people in need of Canadian help and support. Yeah. And uh, and on the other hand, you know, uh, it, they've, they've got to recognize that there is a concern around, around risk. Shachi, thank you so much. I always enjoy talking to you because, um, with all due respect to the other pollsters I speak with and I speak to a few, you're the most interesting. <laughs> Don't let them hear you say that. <laughs> well, I think I just did. I know. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. 
Thanks, Roy. Take care. Take care. Shachi Curl from uh, Angus Reed. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Derek and Francis Barr's uh, foster children, two foster children, were removed from their Hamilton, Ontario home by Children's Aid Society. The country's been talking about this for the last few days. And uh, they lost their kids. And they lost their foster parents' license because a Children's Aid Society worker decided that the bars were ignoring an important Canadian um, cultural tradition. That's why they lost their kids, and that's why they lost their license to be foster parents. I'm going to tell you right now, that is a load of bovine excrement. I had a chance to speak with um, with Derek Bars yesterday. Have a listen to that, and then I'll I'll share with you why I think they really lost the kids. Stick around. Have a listen, Derek. Where are the children, and what have they been told? Do you know? I appreciate your desire to ask a question. We. Um, agreed to keep confidence with regard to particulars with with the children. What anybody other than my wife and I has told them, we have no idea. We told them that they were, we wanted them to stay with us as long as that was necessary, but we told them that we had been told that we had to lie to them in order for them to stay and that we were not prepared to do that. When the children found out that they were leaving, how did they react? They didn't seem to understand that they were going to be leaving permanently. They thought that it would be that they would be leaving for perhaps a short time and that they would be returning. They left smiling and happy. It seems they did not understand. How are you and your wife now? Well, we're reprocessing this, all the emotions of the children leaving and how the agency dealt with us. It's been more than a year. It was March 4th of 2016 when the children left. You lost the foster children, and did you also lose your license as foster parents? Yes, we did. And that in spite of our attempts to compromise with the agency. We suggested that the children might go to a respite home over the Easter weekend. We suggested that we would be most willing to take care of younger children. <clears throat> we had hoped to take care of a toddler and an infant, but the agency would not allow any compromise whatsoever. It was either tell the children that the Easter Bunny is real and keep them, or don't tell them, and you'll lose the children, and that's what happened. It's going to be incredulous for people, no matter how many times they hear your story or read about your story, to understand that a children's aid society would decide that two parents who love their foster children, two parents who clearly have the best intentions for their children, um, are robbed of their children. I can think of no other word. Uh, they're robbed of their children because you won't tell them the Easter Bunny is real. I, it doesn't make any sense. It's the well-being of the children that matters. And how does the how does the Easter Bunny factor into this? Although I understand the uh, the most recent worker you had involved uh, with the children said something about the Easter Bunny being part of Canadian culture. 
Right. She said that. And it's also true that that term, the well-being of the children or best interests of the children, is a remarkably elastic term, and it can encompass whatever the agency wants it to encompass. Well, there's a, uh, there's a film online called Powerful as God, and it's about the Ontario Children's Aid Society. And the title, and I spoke with the director and producer of the film a few years ago, and she told me the title was taken from a direct quote from one of the Children's Aid Society workers, We Are as Powerful as God. Indeed, they can do whatever they want to in terms of deciding where to stay, who they stay with. Derek, one of the questions that people will ask, of course, and I'm sure you've heard it, is why not just let the kids um, enjoy the concept of an Easter bunny? Uh, you didn't confirm or deny that the Easter bunny existed. You just didn't talk about it, as I understand it. So why not just say, all right, in order to keep the children, we'll... Tell them the Easter Bunny is real. Well, my wife and I went into the process telling the agency that we would not lie to the children. This, this topic now focuses on the Easter Bunny, but it also encompasses Santa Claus. Um, we had told the agency that we were not going to lie to the children, that if we gave them gifts, they would be coming from us, or we would be giving them for their parents since they couldn't be with their parents at the time. And so we have a no-lying policy, which means we won't accept lies from anyone and we won't tell lies to anyone. And that's the reason my wife and I chose to proceed as we did, that there's never a reason good enough to lie to anyone, that the children should count on us to tell the truth, even when telling the truth and hearing the, the truth can be very, very difficult. Uh, I understand the biological parents had some upset over the fact that they didn't see the children with, with Santa Claus in a photograph. We heard that from the agency. So there's a sense in which we don't even know if that's true. Uh, the reason I say that is biological parents make their wishes known to foster parents by way of a communication book, which goes back and forth between the, the families where the children are. And we heard nothing whatsoever from either biological parent about any any shortcomings in the care we were providing. There was no request that came by way of the communication book regarding either Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. And you made it very clear at the beginning. You told Children's Aid Society that you were devout Christians, you don't lie to children about the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus. And uh, so what did they say at the time? Well, full disclosure, we mentioned Santa Claus, and we mentioned that we would not be going trick-or-treating with children in our care. So Halloween was touched on. We... We had no idea that the Easter Bunny would even be an issue. And uh, our file with uh, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms also includes documents from the agency noting these two things. And the agency knew this before they opened our home, and yet they opened our home. You're going to court. What are you arguing? We're arguing that our charter rights have been violated by the Children's Aid Society, particularly our freedom of religion, our freedom of conscience, and our freedom of expression. Have you heard from other foster parents across Ontario and elsewhere? We've heard messages of support from various people. We've also heard messages of concern as to what CAS is doing in the direction that they are heading. And Derek, the final question, what is it you want my listeners to know and understand about this? 
No, my wife and I love children very much. We don't have children of our um, We desire foster and to adopt, and that what happened to us in Ontario could very easily be a barrier in any other jurisdiction. If the agency does due diligence and they ask, did you foster anywhere else? How did that go? Why were you shut down? What happened? So we'd like our home to be open so that we would be able to foster and adopt no matter where we live. And we'd like the rights of other upstanding foster parents to be respected and valued and validated by CAS. There's dark bars. So what is the punishment, the most extreme punishment that a children's aid society or children's services can deliver to uh, foster parents. It would be to take the kids away and it would be to take away their license to be foster parents. That would be the most significant punishment the children's aid society could initiate. And in order to have that happen, you would have to think that you'd have to be somebody who is really clearly endangering the children or denying the children the fundamentals of life and not providing them with a home that where they should be. And so the decision was made that uh, Derek and Francis Bars shouldn't have their kids. And now you know why. Because they wouldn't tell them the Easter Bunny is real. Now they told, the Bars told the Children's Aid Society going in that they were devout Christians. They told them. They informed them. They weren't shy about it. And they said they wouldn't lie to the kids, and they weren't going to tell them the Easter Bunny exists. Now, the response from the CAS, and I want you to think about this, please. The response from the agent for the Children's Aid Society is, oh, you are denying these children, little kids, you are denying these children a piece of Canadian culture, the Easter Bunny. If you believe for one-tenth of a second that a children's aid society removed two children and removed the license to be foster parents because the foster parents wouldn't tell the kids the Easter Bunny is real, then I have that proverbial swampland in Florida to sell you. Here's why they removed the kids. Because the bars are devout Christians. That's why. They didn't like somebody at the CAS, didn't like that the bars are devout Christians, and that cost them the kids. You can't for one second believe that the Easter Bunny, the Easter Bunny, was the reason to remove the kids and to take away their foster license. Now, there will be people who will say, look, they're, they're, they're denying them the, the enjoyment of the Easter Bunny. I, uh, fine. I don't disagree. But the bars told the Children's Aid Society all of this when they went in. This was not a surprise. But their new worker, their new worker decided, the new worker decided they shouldn't have the kids anymore and said that the Easter Bunny is a piece of Canadian culture. Give me a break. They lost the kids because they're devout Christians. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. 
I have this habit when I go to see my doctor. I always say to my doctor, how are you? And, I, and it ever in, what's the word? Inevitably. Boy, these store-bought teeth can be a problem. Uh, inevitably, I get a look. doesn't matter if I go to see my family doctor or they send me to a specialist because they have no idea what to do with me. I always say to the doctor, how are you? And then I don't say anything. And they look at me and it's fine. No, how are you? Because doctors never get asked how they are. And it's a tough gig. Because people are constantly coming to you with problems. That's what you, that's what you deal with. You deal with people's most personal, most difficult problems. And there are times you have to give people information that you don't want to give them. You just don't want to go anywhere near it. But you have to. So you do. And I'm sure that that haunts doctors many times. So I was very interested when I, um, when I found out a book by Dr. Michael Myers. He's a Canadian psychiatrist, uh, licensed both in Canada and the United States. Uh, practiced psychiatry uh, privately, also was a, a professor at UBC and uh, State University of New York in uh, New York City. And his book is Why Are Doctors Killing Themselves? I was very interested in that. And uh, so we've called Dr. Myers, and uh, he's agreed to talk to us. Dr. Myers, thank you very much for taking the time, and uh, hope you're having a good Easter. Thank you, and thanks very much for having me on the program. Well, I'm glad you are with us. Uh, would you explain to us just how, when I say one doctor, at least a doctor, at least every day one doctor takes his or her own life. That's right. deeply disturbing. But it doesn't talk about the scope of the issue. I mean, there must, if one doctor is taking his or her life every day, there must be many doctors who are living or existing on, I don't know, the emotional fringes, as it were. Is, is that a fair statement? Yes. Um, the uh, one thing I want to clarify is that uh, of the statistics we have, they're really just the United States, and that's that's where the figure of three to four hundred doctors die by suicide uh, every year in the United States. So that translates into roughly a doctor a day. I'm not sure what the rates would be in Canada, uh, uh, but yet, you know, having lived and practiced in Canada for 40 years myself, I certainly looked after many suicidal physicians in my practice in Vancouver. And I also lost physician patients uh, of mine to suicide. So it does exist. And I think, if I heard you say, one, one is too many. And uh, so I got the idea for the book uh, after uh, many years of, of doing other research and attending conferences. And, and there are a lot of things that we already know about uh, we physicians that were you know, prone to depression. We have rates of alcohol and drug use that are about the same or higher than the general public, suicide rates that are higher in male physicians than men, and quite a bit higher in women physicians compared to women. So two and a half years ago, I decided to start interviewing family members of doctors who had taken their own lives. And that's really been quite a profound journey. I have obviously tremendous respect for these individuals for letting me into their hearts and uh, in the grieving process. But they have a lot to say, and that's why I wanted to put that in the form of a book. And uh, that's why the subtitle is Lessons Learned from Their Families and Those They Leave Behind. Um, the, the multitude, I, I, I received some notes from, uh, from a publicist who's working with you on the book. And yes. 
Usually I throw those out, but this, these were actually very useful. So I, I like to have my own questions, but I have my own, but these are also very useful. The multitude of triggers that cause doctors to take their own lives, including burnout, depression, bipolar, illness, drug use, and PTSD. I read that, and I have to ask myself this. Does the medical profession attract vulnerable, emotionally vulnerable people? Okay, it's a very good question. Um, we know that you, you may have heard of the expression wounded healer. Yes. Uh, and what that basically means, it's not restricted to just medicine. It would occur in nursing as well as the clergy. That people are sort of drawn to some fields because of their own personal life experiences. That's where the wounded part comes in. So it's not unusual for physicians to have things happen to them in the past or to their families. And uh, they might have found themselves actually, you know, quite useful in some respects in the family in that regard. And they, you know, they're good in science or they, they want to make a difference and that's why they want to become a physician. And so there can be a vulnerability, but what I'm, I always like to stress, though, is that even when and if a medical student or a physician has had a previous bout with something, say depression, anxiety, perhaps abuse, um, something in high school or college, that it's very important for them to pay attention to the, that it could come back, you know, with the stress of medical school, of the stress of residency training, or the stress of the, you know, everyday practice of medicine. And so that's why those types of things are important. But the other, the other side of this, what's really important to know, is that some of the most accomplished and talented um, physicians worldwide are so-called wounded healers. They are really survivors of sometimes unbelievable backgrounds. And so, you know, they generally, you know, cope very well, perform very well. They have what we call good resilience. But yet, on the other hand, they can be, you know, a little bit more prone to the, you know, to the slings and arrows of uh, everyday life. And, and, of course, not just in medicine, but in our personal lives as well. What about the issue of mental health, mental health care, and doctors? And we've talked about mental health on this program, mental health care, uh, for, for many years. And there was, uh, initially it wasn't talked about when I started in radio because there was a stigma. Uh-huh. And gradually that stigma has been replaced by some level of understanding and encouragement yes. for people to, to take care of their mental health. Is it more difficult for a doctor to, to present him or herself to a professional colleague and say, yep. I think I need some help? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you really, you really put it uh, exactly as it is. Um, we physicians tend to delay a bit going to our doctors for anything. Like, say we notice, you know, some, some problem in our breathing, for instance, or a woman might notice a lump in her breast, or there's something, you know, that they kind of hope will go away, put it off, that sort of thing. But eventually they go. And what I find, and you use the word stigma, which is so accurate, because the stigma uh, in physicians, uh, when they notice symptoms in themselves and wonder, hmm, I wonder if I should go see someone, um, it's, it, it, it is magnified. They, they feel it's got a lot to do with the culture of medicine. You know, we're trained, we're trained to be strong. We're trained to be healers of others. And to make that transition from being the healer to the one who needs some healing himself or herself, it's very tough for a lot of, a lot of physicians. But I must tell you, though, that, you know, in my long practice, though, looking after doctors, when that individual does you know, get up the, you know, the gusto 
and, and just, you know, throws stigma aside and comes for help, the relief that they feel is absolutely profound because it's just a very nice feeling to know that you've got somebody out there who's going to take care of you. Um, and for a lot of physicians, that's just really hard to do, to just let somebody take care of him or her. Runs counter um, to what all the training is about. Oh, yes. Yeah. In fact, I was, asked, I, was asked, I was invited once to write an article on suicide and psychiatrists, and the woman who invited me to do this in a medical journal, she, she wasn't in the health field. She was you know, more of an MBA type of person. And she was really shocked by this. She felt of all people that we psychiatrists would have a leg up. First of all, we would know what to look for in ourselves. And then, of course, then we would, you know, just go straight to care because we would know maybe who to call or who to go to and get the care and get well. So the, the, the thought of a psychiatrist as, you know, one branch of medicine actually taking their own life was so, was so foreign to her and paradoxical. Um, and so that's why another reason why I wanted to write the book, because, because it, is, it is shocking for some people to know that the guardians of life um, and individuals who are really committed you know, to, to helping others and to saving lives, uh, you know, can be at risk themselves. And it's, it's, it's such a tragedy yeah. um, when, their, when their life ends. I imagine, the there, I imagine there are many patients who would, would then say, I can't understand that. I was just at the doctor's last week. He, she yeah. seemed fine. I mean, they, they took care of me. You, know, I had no, right. you couldn't tell. And, because and in fact, Roy, I put a section in the book because uh, I interviewed a number of patients who had lost their doctor to suicide. And uh, that, that was very tough for these individuals, especially ones who had an extended relationship with the individual, like maybe a GP, right. family physician. Right, I imagine so. Or an internist, a gynecologist, or someone like that that they'd known over years. And it was very interesting. As they look back, they kind of, they kind of you know, noticed something, they think, and wondered and regretted that they didn't say anything. And not to, you know, not to be intrusive, but to just say, Hey, Doc, are you, are you okay? Are you taking care of yourself? Because you guys work so hard. So, you know, make sure that, you know, make sure you take care of yourself because um, I need you and I like you. Well, you know, Dr. Myers, the reason that I started the segment by pointing out that I always say to my doctor, how are you? And I'm actually yes, asking. Yes, I'm glad you do that. I'm actually asking, how are you? I'm not, it's not just a figure of speech. I'm saying, how are you? Right. Uh, it's right. always met with a, well, a little bit of a, 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 a chuckle or um, um, push it aside because I don't really want to answer that question, and and I'm not here to answer your questions, here to answer mine. And, and then after maybe a few seconds or so of I don't say anything, I just look at them, they start to tell me how they are. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's you have these conversations. There's actually, you're dealing with another human being as well as a pro- medical professional. I think if we had, right. maybe if we had more of that interaction, that might help doctors as well. I, I don't know. Right. I'm just guessing. Or, right. Why, I'm so glad you told that story because what you're doing already I have recommended in the book because I've, I've, uh, my point has been is that suicide prevention, I'm taking this from Dr. David Satcher, who is uh, one of the Surgeon Generals in the United States, and his motto is suicide prevention is everyone's business. So we're all in this together, and I think, you know, when a physician, or sorry, when a patient does reach out like that, again, without being intrusive, it really does make a difference because that physician will kind of think about it later. And in fact, sometimes when doctors came to me, what the final straw was, they thought they were coping pretty well until 
they had one of their patients say to them something like, Dr. X, uh, are, are you okay? Like, you just asked me that question two minutes ago, and I answered it, and, and are, are you having trouble, you know, with your memory or something like that? I mean, again, you know, they don't know what their role is, so they don't know how much to say. But the point, though, is, is that that same doctor, though, later in the day would get on the phone and call me and say, you know, I think I need to see someone. I thought I was doing okay, but my patients are starting to notice that I'm not on top of my game. Oh, uh-huh, that's important. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. You can send emails to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Follow me on Twitter at The Roy Green Show and listen back to any segment that we air. And you can download as well by going to any of the sites of our chorus radio stations which carry this program and go to their audio vaults and you'll find it all there. Podcast. All right. So uh, Dr. Michael Myers is my guest. We're talking about his book, Why Doctors Are, or Why Are Doctors Killing Themselves? And Dr. Myers is a highly respected psychiatrist in both Canada and the United States. Dr. Myers, during the break, I, I just had this thought. We, I'm sure we have many doctors who will listen to this program because you know, a lot of people think I need help. Um, and they're right. But if I may inject a, an attempt at humor. But I, let's assume that we have doctors listening to this program and they maybe they recognize a little bit of themselves in the conversation we've had so far. What would you want to say as general advice to doctors who may be listening to this show and say, yeah, this is all kind of sounding familiar? Okay. Yes, thanks for that question, too. So what I would say is the following. If you notice... Hello? Yes, go ahead, please. Okay. Uh, If you notice some change in yourself at all, that doesn't seem to be going away. Now, I know that's very general, but that could range all the way... Hello? Now, I think you may have a bit of call. Was it call waiting or call disturbing? Oh, hold on. I never like to hear that Sorry on the radio. That. We may be okay. It's all okay. Right. Okay, go uh, ahead. No, what I wanted to say, though, is that any change that's, that's not going away the last several weeks, for instance, uh, and it could be even include a lot of physical symptoms uh, like trouble sleeping, trouble concentrating, aches and pains, um, changing your diet, uh, drinking more than usual, or... Uh, um, just noticing that you're not able to concentrate as well, you don't have the same energy as usual, all those sorts of things. I always advise physicians to start with their primary care physician, like their primary, their um, family physician or GP. And for those physicians who don't have one, because there are a number who don't, um, it's usually a good idea there for them then maybe to go directly to, to call uh, to call a psychiatrist uh, if you feel that that's not fully necessary. Go to talk with a psychologist if it feels that that's something that you know you you would want to do is mainly is mainly talk. But it just it just helps to to go see someone to 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 talk with someone about this. The other thing too is that every province, including Ontario, uh, have very big uh, physician health uh, programs, and the one that you have nearest to you is housed right in Toronto. And it's very well staffed, uh, and physicians can get you know help there you know anytime. And what they'll do is that they'll listen to the concern and try to find somebody in the in the local vicinity of where the individual is living and working, <clears throat> who's available to see them quickly, so that you can get an assessment, figure out what's going on, and see what treatment might be indicated. Okay, I was just uh, also uh, thought here that. 
first of all, you have 400 uh, doctors, up to 400 in the United States committing suicide in a year, one, one a day, maybe one day plus a little bit. And possibly 10% of that number, maybe more in Canada, just comparing populations. But if you lose that number of doctors, and if you also have a significant number of physicians who are dealing with emotional stress and emotional difficulty, which makes them, if they're listening to this, feel like they may be the part of the discussion, doesn't that then also, and I have about a minute left here, doesn't that also then filter down to a certain extent to the level of patient care that is afforded? Not that the doctor doesn't want to give it, but maybe they're just not able emotionally to provide the care they normally would. Right, and, that, and, that's, and that's the rub in so many ways because think of situations where, you know, that it's an underdoctored community. Uh, those individuals, in my experience, feel so guilty. They feel guilty going on vacation, let alone taking some time away because they're, they're not feeling well and need to be on medical leave. So that's where we need, we need supports built into the system that there are people who can step in and uh, take over somebody's uh, practice or their, you know, their clinic or whatever on a short-term basis until the person is well again. And that eases, that eases the responsibility and guilt that the person feels. Yeah, the, stre- the stress levels must be huge. And with the, the, pre- uh, the pressure under uh, which healthcare systems operate in both uh, Canada and the United States is immense, and the doctors are constantly on the front lines of, of all of this. Dr. Myers, thank you. It's been uh, great talking to you. I appreciate it. And uh, Thank you very much for having me on your show. Yeah. All the very best with your book. And the best to you, too. Thank you, thank sir. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.